V in front of me is blank, so appreciate that. So if this is your first time uh, together with us, uh, we've, been, we've started a journey through the book of Deuteronomy. It's a series of three speeches by Moses, and he's giving it to the children and grandchildren of the people who came out of Egypt and who were redeemed. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. And in the, in, the, in the first speech, which is where we're in, he's, gonna, he's chronicling two trips to the edge of the promised land. The first with that first generation who was brought out of Egypt toward the promised land. The second with their children and grandchildren who are coming a second time right to that same edge of the promised land. And if you were with us last week, we read how Israel's second generation began. They went to three different people groups. The Israelites are the family of Jacob. They're the ones traveling, and they stop at the land of Edom, the Edomites, who is the family of Esau, and they go by the Moab, land of Moab, the Moabites, the family of Lot, and the Ammonites, the family of Lot. Each of these were related, and they also had ugly conflicts, and, and we're not going to go backwards and talk about that, but this week, Moses chronicles about another encounter that's going to take place, this time not with family and unresolved conflicts, this time with just a straight-up enemy, someone who doesn't even want me to be alive. And this group is best known by their king. And we'll read in Deuteronomy 2, verse number 24 is where we're going to begin. Deuteronomy chapter number 2 and verse number 24. Again, we've got to think of what's going on. Moses is talking. He's replaying with this generation what has happened that brought them to the edge of the promised land. So they've gone through those other three groups, and this is what he says. Set out now and cross the Arnon Gorge. See, I have given into your hand Sihon, the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his country. Begin to take possession of it and engage him in battle. Now, let me pause right here. If you've been with us for a few weeks, there should be a couple of terms that would jump out. Like we've already talked about, I have given and take possession. These are the same phrases that Yahweh said to the first generation. Now he's saying the same thing to the second generation. And we'll see if they trust. Verse 25. This very day, I will begin to put the terror and fear of you on all the nations under heaven. They will hear reports of you and will tremble and be in anguish because of you. And like, this is an echo back to the first generation too. Because that first generation sent out spies. Those spies brought back a report of walled cities and giants. And when the people heard the report, their hearts melted. They were scared. And now we see reports again. This time, it's the people in the walled cities and the giants who are hearing the reports about Israel. And they're scared. Verse 26, from the desert of Kedemoth, I sent messengers to Sihon, king of Heshbon, offering peace. Now, I'm going to pause right here because that statement is so important to the main teaching of what we're going to do today. Because you remember what Yahweh just said two verses ago. He said, I'm going to give you the land, engage them in battle, take possession. That's what he says. Engage them in battle and take possession. But look at what Moses does. He sends messengers to the king saying, hey, would you like peace? That just sounds like that's two, diff two completely different outcomes. Keep that, keep that 
conflict and contradiction in mind as we, as we keep reading. So I'm going to begin starting in verse 26. From the desert of Kedemoth, I sent messengers to Sihon, king of Heshbon, offering peace and saying, let us pass through your country. We will stay on the main road. We will not turn aside to the right or to the left. Sell us food to eat and water to drink for their price in silver. Only let us pass through on foot. As the descendants of Esau who live in Seir and the Moabites who live in Ar did for us. Until we cross the Jordan into the land Yahweh our God is giving us. Now here's what's interesting. If you remember what we said last week. The descendants of Esau. They came out to meet Israel at the border with armies going to war and refused to let Israel through their land. But now Moses is telling this king, hey, let us come through like, like Esau did. I, I think this is so interesting. Israel was treated harshly by those descendants of Esau, but Moses doesn't throw him under the bus when he's talking to this king. You know, what a great lesson that we don't have to publicize the way that people treat us wrongly. We can be very careful with our words as a means of preserving relationships. You do know it's going to be very hard to rebuild a broken relationship if you continue to tear that relationship down to other people. I mean, just because you know something doesn't mean you have to tell someone. I'm guessing that everyone in here, there's things about you that other people know, and you would not want them going around and telling other people about it. Well, how about we do the same courtesy? You might know something about someone that doesn't mean you have to tell someone. And you know, if someone around you begins to talk in a very negative way about someone, you know the best way to turn that around is not just to be quiet, not just to agree, but find a way to bring something positive into that conversation about the very person that they're tearing down. We don't, we don't have to just go along with that. I just, I just read that and I'm thinking like, Moses could have been like, hey, let us do what those people didn't do for us. But he doesn't say that. He's talking to a king outside of his family and he's trying to protect relationships. Let's go back to the text. Verse number 30. How does Sihon respond to this offer of peace? Verse number 30 says, but Sihon, king of Heshbon, refused to let us pass through for Yahweh your God had made his spirit stubborn and his heart obstinate in order to give him into your hands as he has now done. Yahweh said to me, see, I have begun to deliver Sihon and his country over to you. Now begin to conquer and possess his land. So again, you have to keep this in mind. This has already taken place and Moses is recounting what took place. But he said, you know, we sent the message of peace, but Sihon came with his armies. And here's why he did. Yahweh made his spirit stubborn and his heart obstinate. It, it, it almost sounds like Sihon did it because God made him do it. Like he didn't even have a choice. Is that what happened? Well, let's just keep reading through verse 34. Verse 32 says, when, when Sihon and all his army came out to meet us in battle at Jehaz, 
Yahweh our God delivered him over to us and we struck him down together with his sons and his whole army. And at that time we took all his towns and completely destroyed them. Men, women, and children. We left no survivors. So Sihon comes to fight. The armies of Israel attack and they conquer everyone and they leave no survivors. Not men, not women, not children. And we will address this. Just not today. But this is a big stumbling block. It's a big question. Like, why would God say get rid of everybody? And we'll get to that. We're just not going to get to that today. Instead, today I want to address these contradictions that Yahweh says, I will give you their land, fight them, take possession. Moses sends messengers the king, refu- messengers of peace, saying, we'll just pass through. The king says, no way, you're not going to. I'm going to fight you. And yet it seems like Yahweh was the one that made him do it. An entire kingdom was destroyed because Yahweh made a king go to battle. This is a really important story to understand in Scripture. Because some people will point to a passage like this to bolster their theology of salvation that God chooses or predestines some people for salvation and chooses or predestines other people for destruction. Like he hardens hearts that doesn't, doesn't even let people come to him for salvation or, or that he softens hearts that do allow him to come, that do allow people to come to him. Sometimes there's a, there's a teaching that's very popular, and it's called Reformed Theology. Sometimes it's called Calvinism. There's some really, really well-known, and, and I, that I believe are very well-respected pastors and religious leaders who, who believe that the choice of salvation has not up to man at all. God is the only one. God determines who is saved, and God determines who is not saved. And at the core, at the very heart of that teaching is this high view of God that he sits in over all things. But there is a difference between God being over all things and God determining all things. There's a difference that God rules and reigns and that God makes everybody do exactly what he says. And the Bible teaches that God is the author of salvation, but does the Bible teach that God chooses who gets salvation? Does God get to predestine some people to eternal life and predestine others to eternal separation? And a passage like that, like we just read, some, some people will point to as evidence that God determines everything that happens in this world. Man has no choice. That king had no choice. God made him do it. But that leads to some really tough questions like this. If God takes away someone's ability to choose, how does then God hold them responsible for their choices? If I'm going to make you do it, I mean, if God's going to make me do it, well, then how could you hold me accountable for what you made me do? Is there justice? And the the title of the message was, Does God Play Fair? Is there justice in God forcing someone to do something and then punishing them for what they did? And now this view of God, when people sometimes hear this view of God, it causes them to completely reject God as a cruel, unloving God who just creates people to destroy them. And they walk away from him. 
And so what's happening here? And that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time on today. It's a little bit more of a crash course. I'd love to go in depth with you. We just don't have time. But I, I, want, to ta- I want to pause here and just take a moment and try to help every believer have some understanding as to whether God predestines people to heaven and hell, eternal life or eternal damnation, or does he give people a choice for salvation? This is where we're going to go to Romans chapter 9, if you would. Romans chapter number 9. So in Romans 8, Paul walks to this mountaintop of the gospel. And he ends by saying, nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ, the love of God in Christ Jesus. But while Paul's on this mountaintop peak, it's almost like he sees something that really bothers him because he says nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And then he looks and he says, but there are some of my own brothers and sisters, my own Israelites, the very covenant people of God who are going to spend eternity separated from the love of God. And it, he's like, wow. And then Paul has to try to make sense of how Israel is chosen as God's covenant people, but some end up outside of the covenant to spend eternity separated from the one who chose them. And what Paul wants to do in Romans 9 is say, it doesn't mean God was unfaithful to his covenant promises when he made them to Israel. And he's going to give two examples that are near and dear to the heart of the the Israelite people, but it's a pattern of the way that God brings salvation to his people. And he starts by giving the illustration of Jacob and Esau. Now, last Sunday, if you were here, we kind of told the story briefly, but told the story of Jacob and Esau that while these two boys were in the womb, Yahweh comes to their mother and says the older will serve the younger, basically flipping the birth order upside down. Let's look at Romans chapter 9, verse number 10. Try to understand this a little bit more. Paul's writing, he says, Not only that, but Rebekah's children, that's Jacob and Esau, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had, any, had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, so I'm going to pause right there. So Paul's pointing to Jacob and Esau to explain how God works in saving his people. They're sometimes called the elect. Like, this is, this is how the elect are chosen. I'm pointing to Jacob and Esau. Keep reading. Not by works, but by him who calls. She was told the, other will, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written. Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. What, shall, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Well, not at all. Okay, so let's pause there. Now, how did Jacob and Esau illustrate God's way of salvation? Well, he starts off by saying, before they were born, God declared over them that the older will serve the younger, which means Jacob, the younger, did nothing to receive the blessing. It was declared over him before he was born. And Esau, the older, did nothing to have the blessing taken from him. It wasn't because of what either of them had done. It was declared over them before they were born. But do you remember how Jacob received the blessing? 
he put on his older brother's clothes and he walked up to his father and said, I am Esau, using his older brother's name. And his blind father was tricked into giving Jacob the blessing. And you think, well, that's scandalous. Why would Paul choose that story, those two boys? Why would Paul use those two boys as a way of illustrating how God gives his blessings to his people, the blessing of salvation? Well, how do we get the blessing of salvation? We approach our Father wearing the righteous robes of our older brother, and we come in Jesus' name. And we don't trick him. He's not blind. He's not old. He is very aware of what is happening because this was the plan before any of us were ever born. The Father has declared that anyone who comes to me in faith in the name and with the works and the righteousness of my Son, Jesus, anyone who comes to me, I will give them the blessing that belongs to my Son, Jesus. It's like that. So the Father gives the blessing of the Son of God to sinners allowing sinners to become sons of God. Wow, this is so amazing. So, so Jacob and Esau really illustrate, well, us as Jacob, the younger, and Jesus as Esau, the older, who deserves the blessing. And we were given the blessing, but, but not by deceit, by a, a design. What well, does that mean that, I, but he said, that God hated Esau and he loved Jacob. Does that mean God hates Jesus and loves us? No, this, this isn't about does he love one and hate the other. This is about a comparison. If we step back, Esau, remember we said last week he met his brother 20 years later? After they had this deception, Esau met his brother 20 years later and he had plenty of material blessings. In fact, Esau even got his own promised land. Remember, the Lord said, you can't go in there. I've given them the land of Seir. You can't have it. It's, I've already given Esau got his own promised land. That doesn't sound like God hates him. But when you step back and you see what Jacob gets, huh, Jacob had a vision of the heavens opening and a ladder going up and down. Jacob goes to this place called Bethel and he meets with God. Jacob regularly gets to hear from Yahweh himself. Jacob becomes the father of the 12 sons of Israel who get to go into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And Jacob's family becomes the avenue where the Messiah of the world comes to the world. And you look like, man, look at all Jacob got versus what Esau got. Huh, it kind of seems like before they were born, God loved Jacob and he hated Esau. But that's not true. He's illustrating salvation. Because think about what we as the sinners get. What we receive when we come by faith. We receive forgiveness of our sins. We receive pardon from all that we deserve for our sins. We receive eternal life, a relationship, a home in heaven, a heavenly home to be with our Father. We have the promise of being with him for eternity. What does Jesus get? 
he gets rejected. He gets beaten. He gets thrown upon a cross. On that cross, he feels forsaken by his own father. He's buried and forgotten. Man, if you were to step back and say, well, it sure seems like the father loves this group of people of sinners more than he loves his own son. But the reality is, Jesus and the Father have such an eternal love, we could never even begin to comprehend it. There's no hate and love here. There's a comparison of how much someone is given. Esau was, or Jacob was given so much, it almost appeared like Esau was given so little, and we as sinners are given so much, it almost appears like much was taken from Jesus. But, but it, doesn't, it doesn't mean God was unfair either. Because do you remember, he chose Jacob, he chose Israel as the avenue for the Messiah, but he also invites people to come to Israel. We saw that last week with Ruth. Ruth the Moabite steps into the nation of Israel and doesn't just join it, but becomes a part of bringing the greatest king in the history of Israel to ever live, King David, through a Moabite woman. And we, today, as Paul says in Romans, I think it's Romans 11, we who turn to Jesus by faith are grafted into the vine of Israel. Anyone who wants to can become a part of this elect people of God. We just have to approach the Father in the way that Jacob approached his father, in the clothes and in the name of our older brother to receive his blessings. So he gives that one illustration, but then he goes on and he gives another example that will be near and dear to the hearts of the, the people in Romans 9. Look at verse number 17, if you would. Verse number 17. You're going to use a man named Pharaoh. Romans 9, 17 says, For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to Harden. I'm going to pause right there. So if you're, if you're familiar with the story of Pharaoh, now I, I realize some of you in here may not be, but if you are familiar with the story of Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, you read over and over and over and over and over, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So is Paul pointing to Pharaoh here to show that God hardens the heart of some to reject him and God is merciful to others to save them? Well, so last year I did a very deep study through the book of Exodus and I discovered something that was so incredible and it changed my understanding of this narrative completely. The problem is we can't see it in our English Bibles. It's hidden. There's two Hebrew words that are actually translated into that English word, harden. And those two Hebrew words have two different meanings. Let me just show you briefly. Oops, I'm sorry. Do I not have that up there? Oh, stink. I don't have it up there. The first word is hazak, H-A-Z-A-K, hazak, and it means to strengthen. The second word is kavod, and it means to make heavy or weighty. And think with me, if something is heavy or weighty, it's hard to move. You might even say it's stubborn, doesn't want to go. You're going to have to trust me on this because we don't have time to go through all of Exodus, okay? But I would encourage you to do your own study. I'm not, I'm, I don't just take my word for it. Go home and study it. We just don't have time to go through it today. If you're familiar with the Exodus story, there's 10 plagues. Each of these plagues, Yahweh is trying to get Pharaoh to know who he is. Because Pharaoh grew up in Egypt, a land of many gods, 
Israel didn't even know who Yahweh was. Remember, Moses had to go to the burning bush to find out, who, well, who are, what's your name? And he says, I am who I am. I am Yahweh. No one knew Yahweh in Egypt. Moses comes back to bring the name of Yahweh to his people, and he goes to Pharaoh and says, hey, I have a God. His name is Yahweh, and he said, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, I don't know who your God is. I don't have to listen to your God. I am God. Don't tell me what to do. And these plagues were ways for Pharaoh to recognize who Yahweh was. Now, again, you have to take my word for it. But all the way up to the seventh plague, every time we read the Lord or Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart, it uses that word hazak, and it means he strengthened Pharaoh's heart. He's not putting something in Pharaoh's heart. He's intensifying what's already there. Why? Because Pharaoh needed to make a choice as to whether he would recognize or reject Yahweh, whether to obey, to refuse his word. Well, the same thing happens for those of you that are married. There was love in your heart, and you had to make a choice. Do I want to ask this person, or do I want to accept a proposal from someone to spend the rest of my life together with them. Like there was love and it kept growing stronger and stronger and stronger until it forced you into a decision. You don't, you don't just continue to hang out. I love you, I love you, I love you without like consummating that in a marriage. Well, you do, but it's not biblical. Um, you know, some people do, but that, that's not the way God has designed it. He wants that love to reach a point where you bring that love together in a commitment that says, I will choose never to walk away from you. And Yahweh was taking this, this understanding of Pharaoh who's beginning to recognize Yahweh and he's making it stronger by another miracle and then another miracle and then another miracle and then another miracle. And after the seventh plague, Pharaoh finally says, I get it. Let me show you what happened. I'm going to skip just a second. Verse 27 of Exodus chapter 9. It says, Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. This is what he says. This time I have sinned, he said to them. Yahweh is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. So here's what happened, right? Yahweh or Pharaoh says, I, I realize now there is a God that is greater than I am. He has the right to determine right and wrong. I do not have the right to determine right and wrong. That's what God's got to do. But now Pharaoh is realizing, I don't have that right. There is a God that is greater than me, and he has finally, I have finally recognized it, Moses. I have sinned. I am in the wrong. Yahweh is in the right. And right after that, he says, you can take the people. <laughs> hey, that's what Yahweh wanted. He wanted Pharaoh to know who he was. And now Pharaoh's recognizing it. And he wanted his people to go. Pharaoh's going to let the people go. After the seventh plague. But Moses recognizes something. And, and you have to read the story. But Moses recognizes something. And Moses says, that's not really what you believe. You're only saying that to stop the plagues. Well, he was right. 
Because look at what happened. If, you have your, if you're in Exodus 9, look at verse 34. It says, when Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder, that was, the, that was the rain and hail and thunder of the seventh plague that killed all their cattle. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened, that's kavod, that is, that is I'm strain, I, I, not just strain, I'm sorry, I, I, am, I am stubborning my heart, I'm refusing to change. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So in this moment, here's what's happening. Pharaoh knows Yahweh. You are a greater God than I am. But I am choosing to reject you. I am hardening my heart to what you're asking me to do. And then the very next chapter, chapter 10, opens up with finding out Yahweh hardens Pharaoh's heart. And this harden is different than every other time up to that point. Up to that point, Yahweh was strengthening Pharaoh's heart, getting him to a point of decision, not to a point of rejection, to a point where Pharaoh had to make a decision. And once Pharaoh made that decision at the end of Exodus 9, now Yahweh says, my will is to get my people out of Egypt. I gave you a chance to let them go. You're not going to let them go. I'm taking them. Now that you have made your decision to reject me, you are left with the consequences of rejecting me. And so what happens? Well, eventually Pharaoh's firstborn son dies in the final plague. Yahweh bring, leads his people out of Egypt. Pharaoh chases them, and he and his, he and his armies are, are killed when the Red Sea collapses in on them. Now, did God make Pharaoh do any of that? No. God's will was my people are going to leave. Pharaoh, they can leave with you, allowing them to, because you understand who I am. Or they can leave without you, letting them, but I'm taking them one way or another. And you're going to be left with the consequences of the decision of whether or not you're going to trust and obey me. You sit back and you like... You understand now how, how God works in Pharaoh's life. This, this changes everything. Because if God had taken away Pharaoh's ability to choose, then how can Pharaoh be held responsible for his choice? But by forcing Pharaoh into a decision of his own choosing, Yahweh displayed justice. He held Pharaoh accountable for his rejection. And this is what Romans 9 is teaching. I'm just going to put it up on the board one more time just so you can understand. It says, therefore, at the end, Romans 9, therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Paul wasn't pointing out Pharaoh as a way to show that God hardens some hearts to reject him and he's merciful to other hearts to accept him. Paul points to Pharaoh to say that God brings people to a point of decision sometimes through hard and difficult circumstances, and sometimes through experiencing his mercy. This isn't about who God chooses for salvation. It's about how God brings people to a point where they make the decision and then are left with the consequences of their decision. God can freely choose how he works in people, whether through hardening or through mercy. In Pharaoh's life, it was a bunch of plagues. It was hard times that got him to a point of having to make a decision, and he made the decision. But think with me what we read in Deuteronomy 2. Sorry, sorry, are you with me? Think with what we read in Deuteronomy 2. King Sihon, Yahweh says, 
engage him in battle, and take possession of his land. But what does Moses do? Hey, Sihon, can we just pass through? Here, here's a, I'm a messenger of peace. We would just like to pass through. But what does it say? Yahweh made his spirit stubborn and his heart obstinate. And if you study it, he made his heart obstinate. He strengthened his heart to the point where Sihon stubborned his spirit and said no. And Yahweh gives his people the victory. You know, there's people today whom God chooses to reveal himself through some really, really difficult, horrible what we would call tragic circumstances. People who suffer abandonment, loss, illness, rejection, and injustice. But you know, there's some people who say, in the worst time of my life, I found Jesus. I have a very good friend. He's a pastor in New England. And his life story, this is his testimony. He was in the military. He had drunk and drunk and drunk and drunk until he could drink no more. And he just wanted one more drink, hoping he would die. And he couldn't die. And in the miserable state he was in, he said, I said one word to the heavens. I looked up and I just said, help. Help. And in that moment... The one who helps rushed in. Today, he, he's preaching this morning to a congregation in New England of the love of God. God hardened, made it really hard, but he revealed in that difficult time who he truly was. And he turned in his heart to him while others will turn to, well, suicide. Or others will turn to complete rejection. And they walk away in those difficult times. But we also have a God who works through mercy. Right? There's a guy in the Bible, his name is Naaman. He was a leper. And he walked, up to a, he walked up to a prophet and he said, will you please heal me? And in a long story short, Naaman was healed. And after he was healed of his leprosy, he said, now I know. Now I know there is no God like Yahweh. Give me some of the land of Israel because I want to I take that dirt with me because I'm going to take it back to where I live and I'm going to, whenever I kneel on, whenever I kneel and pray to Yahweh, I want to do it on his holy land. The mercy of God rushed in and Naaman said, Phew. okay, I'll, I'll just be honest. In my life, all I... I have experienced the mercy of God in such incredible ways. I was born into a Christian home. How merciful. My parents took me to church the very first Sunday I could go. Three times a week we would go to church over and over and over. They showed me an example of marriage. 67 years they were married. So many times I saw wonderful things that drew me eventually, drew me to giving my life to Jesus. But I have others who sat in the same classrooms that I did, who had similar circumstances of a Christian home growing up in a wonderful church, and all they did was say, I don't want any part of it. They rejected Jesus even though they were experiencing his mercy. 
the thing to keep in mind for each of us is there's going to come a time where we're not going to be able to change our choice of accepting or rejecting God. But I have really good news. Today is not that day. Today is not the day where you have to live with your choice. <laughs> today is a day where if you have been rejecting the Lord for any reason, for your whole entire life, today is a day where you can finally say, I, I want you. I know that I need you. And you, it, it, could be, it could be through God's hardening, difficult moments of our life or God's mercy and giving us grace and kindness when it was undeserved. But everything is pushing us to this point of decision where I and you and I have to make the decision to come to the Father like Jacob did. I can't come to you in my clothes. You'll never give me the blessing. I can't come to you in my righteousness. You'll never give me the blessing. I can't come to you in my name. You'll never give me the blessing. But if I come in the name of Jesus and in the works that Jesus has done and the righteousness that he has gone down for me, then I can receive the blessings of the Father. And that's the invitation to you today. Do you want to receive the blessings of the Father? Because if so, it's not about how good of a person you are. It's how good of a person Jesus is. And so here's my encouragement to you today. Humbly examine your salvation. I talk to people all the time who say, oh yeah, I'll go to heaven when I die. All the time. Oh yeah, I'll go to heaven when I die. And here's, here's the question that I always ask. Well, if God were to meet you outside the gates of heaven, before you get in, if God were to meet you outside the gates of heaven and ask you, why should I let you into my kingdom, what would you tell them? And the majority, I would guess over 90% of the people that I talk to when I ask that question, say, well, I tried to be a good person. You cannot come in your own righteousness. I don't care how big the stack of righteous deeds you have done is. You have sin and you cannot come into eternal life with that sin. You, you cannot say, well, I've been a better person than they have. It, you don't compare your righteousness to the neighbor. You compare your righteousness to Jesus. And when we do that, we all fall short. Man, if you say, I, I'm saved, I would beg you. Why do you think God has accepted your plea for salvation? And if it, has, if it starts with, well, I, we're wrong. It needs to start with, well, Jesus, live the life I should have lived. He died the death I deserve, and I am coming to the Father by believing in who the Son of God is and what he has done for me. And after you examine that salvation, may that lead you to joyfully celebrate your Savior. Because it's all about Jesus, right? Like we don't, this, this is a problem that, that many of those Reformed or Calvinists say is, well, then you get to take responsibility for your salvation. No, no, no. I didn't do anything other than say, I can't do anything. I need you. My only request was, please help me. Please 
You save me. I cannot save myself. And that's when the Savior comes rushing in and we get to celebrate him. That's why, that's why we stand and we sing in here. We don't do it because it's what you do in church. We do it because we are celebrating the one who did what we could not do for ourselves. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. And then last, I'd ask you to prayerfully assess your heart. There are times even when, when we come to Christ for salvation and, and we truly become his child. But we still go through difficult circumstances. And those difficult circumstances are forcing us back into a decision. Am I going to trust him today? Am I going to trust him with this really bad thing I never would have chosen for myself? Am I still going to follow him? Or am I going to allow this to separate me from him? And I would just, I would just beg you. I don't know what the, some of you are going through difficult circumstances right now. Some of you are, are on, the world is wonderful for you. Both still have to choose to follow the Savior. And so I would ask you to prayerfully look at your heart. Lord, have I pulled from you because of? Am I just enjoying the blessings of life without you? I'm going to put a verse up here. It's from Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me. Show me and then lead me in the way everlasting. So in just a moment, we're just gonna, we're gonna go to prayer. And can I encourage you, when we bow our heads for prayer, hey, don't pray. Just listen for the answer to that question.